views. Everyone, it is Monday, March 6, 2023, and it is time for the Sunday review of the mainstream media. So, this week, I'll be talking back to the Sunday Talking Heads on CBS Face the Nation, where Maggie Brennan interviews Representative Brad Wenstrup of Ohio, who is the chair of the House COVID subcommittee, who argues that the pandemic origins are clear, that it came from a laboratory in China. be tearing into the Sunday New York Times, showing how the newspaper continually mischaracterizes the facts to mislead the public. I'll also be checking in on Sunday morning propaganda at my favorite feel-good feature news program, CBS Sunday Morning, where correspondent David Pogue reports on the $280 billion CHIPS Act subsidizing chip manufacturing facilities in the U.S. and aiming to rebuild America's critical technology infrastructure. So I'll be talking about these topics and more in the mainstream media coming up right now. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow me on social media. All right, let's take a look at the New York Times. So I'm gonna. There's a lot to cover here, so I'm gonna rip through uh, some of these uh, articles here. Uh, as Trump inquiry continues, Republicans seek oversight of Georgia prosecutors. The proposals are part of a broader push by conservative lawmakers around the country to rein in district attorneys whom they consider too liberal, which there are many, and we've seen this before. They're either attacking Republicans or they're letting criminals. All violent criminals out of jail without bail and whatnot. So the deal with uh, Georgia, the Georgia case is, if you didn't know, is they're prosecuting Trump for trying to interfere with the elections. Isn't that rich? By asking um, the registrar of voters there, um, the guy who was overseeing the election in 2020, to find more votes because he said he, Trump said he clearly won, and that somehow. Uh, the state was stolen from him. And so he wasn't pressuring, uh, I believe it was the Secretary of State. But um, so they're trying to get him on election interference. And this is when you saw the uh, the uh, chairperson of the jury in this case, or the grand jury, excuse me, come out and start talking about it because nobody really cared about this case. And, and the fact is, and the New York Times goes into, and here's... <laughs> The picture of the prosecutor here, Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Atlanta. They start out with their lead here in this article by Richard Fawcett and Danny Hackham. Uh, to Fannie Willis, the district attorney in Atlanta, several bills in the Georgia legislature uh, that would make it easier to remove local prosecutors uh, 
are racist and perhaps retaliatory for her ongoing investigation of former President Donald J. Trump. So the Georgia legislature, which is mostly Republican, are looking to uh, pass legislation that would allow them to remove prosecutors like Fannie Willis. To Republican sponsors of the bill, they are simply a way to ensure the prosecutors enforce the laws of the state, whether they agree on them or not. And this is basically uh, the two measures under consideration would create a new state oversight board that would punish or remove prosecutors for loosely defined reasons, including willful misconduct. Uh, A third would sharply reduce the number of signatures required to seek a recall of district attorney. The proposals are a part of a broader push by conservative lawmakers around the country to rein in prosecutors whom they consider too liberal, not that are too liberal and in some cases are refusing to prosecute low-level drug crimes or enforce strict new abortion laws. So they paint this uh, pretty fair, I would say, for the New York Times in any case, but it's they, they say that the legislator were, will deem prosecutors too liberal, not that they demonstrate that through their acts. So moving on to uh, the next article from the New York Times here, Ayn DeSantis, Trump readies for a long primary battle. Donald Trump bask in affection from activists at CPAC. Now they're activists at CPAC. They're not Republicans on Saturday, but his campaign is preparing for an ugly protracted primary fight for the nomination and pledging even an indictment would not stop him. The mainstream media, and particularly the New York Times, are pushing for Ron DeSantis to run. He hasn't announced yet. And if and to be perfectly honest with you, if Ron DeSantis doesn't enter the race, it's not going to be a protracted battle whatsoever. That Trump will surely get the nomination. So once again, if Ron DeSantis is listening, I will ask you: please do not run, just to ensure some cohesive, some cohesion within the party itself, particularly MAGA, which has taken over the Republican Party. There seems to be less and less room for neocons and other corporatists uh, within the Republican Party. So I'll just read the lead here. Inside the MAGA-clad corridors of this week's conservative political action conference, the politics of the Republican Party seemed almost unchanged from the pinnacle of Donald J. Trump's presidency. Sequin wearing superfans jostled for selfies uh, with whichever member of the Trump family happened to be nearby. Chance of We Love Trump rang out the halls. But outside the confines of the friendly gathering, Mr. Trump and his campaign have become adjusting to the new reality of 2024. The former president may be the front runner for the Republican president nomination, full stop, but he's no longer the singular leader of his party that he never was, even when he ran in 2016. What about Ted Cruz? It was only during his presidency that he had people coalesce around uh, MAGA. And then it goes on to... um, degrade Trump and oh where is you know after a fitful start the Trump operation is now actively preparing for the possibility of a drawn out 2024 primary which it won't be if Ron DeSantis doesn't enter the race if he does enter the race I must say that that in itself seems you know a lot of people will argue with me that in itself seems only a way to undermine the party or the ticket I should say So moving on to the next article, in Syria, Millie says U.S. troops are still needed to counter ISIS. You know, I must say here, uh, I'll just go into the subhead, the nearly eight-year-old American mission in the country has taken back a back burner recently, but the Pentagon's top general in rare visit says it remains worth the risk. Now, let me just say here that the United States has 
uh, military troops <laughs> in Syria without the permission of the government. They literally invaded uh, Syria and are stationed there. And without any, uh, any recalcitrance or anything like that that are basically occupying oil fields in the eastern part of Syria saying they're there to fight ISIS when ISIS is, you know, Trump got rid of, Trump and Russia got rid of ISIS in Syria. And so they're just stationed there in the oil fields, occupying the oil fields, which is basically taking revenue away from the Assad regime, which they wish to, wish to topple for a variety of reasons, particularly was it because it's allied with Russia and uh, they're a closed country, which means that they can't, NGOs and corporations can't go in there and do business, nor anybody else. So I'm not going to get into this article too much. I just want to point out that the United States illegally has troops inside of Syria without permission of the sovereign government, because they are, in fact, a sovereign nation state, which the United States invaded. The next article up here, protesters damage property at site of planned police center in Atlanta. This is still going on. So cop city protesters are still there at the construction site of a police training facility in Atlanta, outside Atlanta. Uh, the disturbance grew out of demonstrations among hundreds of activists in a forest being developed into the training center. Now, I'm just going to point out something here that is and is not correct. And we're going to go a little bit into the shooting death of this one protester that was there that was said to have fired upon police and then shot multiple times by police. Hundreds of activists breached the site of a proposed police and fire training center in Atlanta's wooded outskirts on Sunday, burning police and construction vehicles in a trailer, setting off fireworks towards off, uh, um, uh, officers standing nearby. Was oh, this the same? Oh, I'm sorry. I screwed up this... Um, I wanted to go to this first. This was first published and then the other one. So a new front line in the debate over police in a forest near Atlanta. Six weeks after protesters were shot and killed, officers are bracing for a more confrontations with activists seeking to stop a police and fire training center. When constructions in the uh, uh, police training center southeast of uh, Atlanta last month, the uh, Scene had more in common with a military incursion than a municipal building projects in the suburbs. So says the New York Times, police officers and armored trucks escorted construction workers as they cleared a pathway for heavy equipment and installed anti-erosion fences. Fences. Why did they need police escorts? Because the um, construction workers were being harassed by protesters. For 18 months, this parcel of wooded Woodland, once a prison farm for the low-level convicts, now mostly re reclaimed by the surrounding forests, has galvanized both environmental advocates who want to preserve, preserve one of the region's largest remaining green spaces, false, and mostly activists concerned about increased militarization and aggressive tactics of police forces, anti-police activists, who are out in the woods protesting this, and this is what happened, and then a, one of the protesters got shot after, after protest, after he apparently fired on police. Now, the, the person, Manuel Esteban Paez Terran, environmental activist known as Tortuguida, who was killed in what police described as an exchange of gunfire. So then I want to go back to this other article here where they were bracing for 
more problems and look what happened here is hundreds of activists breached the site of a proposed police and fire training center in Atlanta's Woodland outskirts on Sunday, burning police and construction vehicles in a trailer, setting off fireworks towards officers stationed nearby. So that is an assault on police and destruction of uh, property. A lot of these people are getting arrested for domestic terrorism, which it is. You know, peaceful protesting and hugging trees or chaining yourself to a tree or whatever is peaceful demonstration, which is uh, largely understood and allowed in the United States. But burning police vehicles and and actually uh, assaulting police officers by shooting fireworks at them is not allowed. So moving on to the opinion pages of the New York Times, first Jamel Bowie, 1776 is not what Ron DeSantis wants it to be, and he goes off against Ron DeSantis. And I'm not going to go too much into this article, but he talks a lot about equality here in, in this article, and but he doesn't talk about what the um, what is in, you can see how many times he uses equality here, what is actually in the Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence, which he quotes, is that it's not about equality, it's about equal rights. All men are created uh, equal, basically, in the eyes of God. I mean, they're not equal. You're not born equal um, for a variety of different reasons. You're born into different uh, castes, if you will, or or with different backgrounds, or some people are born with a mental disability or physical disability, and some aren't, and so people aren't equal but it's equal rights under the law, which he doesn't address. It's the freedom for people to act and under a law that people enjoy their equal rights under the law. It's not about equality as much as equal rights for each citizen, uh, regardless of male or female or whatever race you are. Um, but he, of course he doesn't, um, he doesn't address that at all. So also, uh, Charles Blow goes off on, uh, no, this isn't the one by Charles Blow. This is Anna Marie Cox. This is Hunter Biden has a, uh, some explaining to do. Um, and it talks about Hunter Biden. And it just basically says that Joe Biden should cut Hunter Biden loose and stop defending him and allow Hunter Biden to defend himself and his laptop and business dealings at Al. But the two are inexorably inter interwoven, interlinked, um, because the fact is, is that he wouldn't have got these lucrative business deals abroad if his, if his father wasn't in politics. And the reason he got these lucrative business deals abroad was a part of an influence peddling scheme, but they don't talk about it in this article. They just says about his son's behavior, talking about his son's behavior, you know, stop defending Hunter and and allow him to defend himself, um, you know, in the press or whatever, which he tried to do. He came out and all these different shows and talked about smoking Parmesan cheese and his crack habit. And I just have an addiction, leave me alone. And it's nothing to do with that. It has to do with your foreign business dealings that you're being the son of a, a, the president now, but at, at, at that time, the vice president and before that senator, as part of an influence peddling scheme, he gets to sell artwork and get these no-show jobs, and then he kicks back to the big guy and Jim Biden. So everybody knows that by now, but they don't address this in the opinion piece. So this is the Charles Blow, uh, this spectacular fall of Lori Lightfoot, 
And his reasoning is, Mr. Blow, is that um, Lori Lightfoot, uh, well, black mayors are, uh, how is this put again? I have to, are black mayors too quickly blamed for rising crime? And that is about the spectacular fall of Lori Lightfoot is that um, she uh, was unfairly blamed for rising crime. And if you look at the statistics, um, she's not unfairly blamed. Um, she and, and the other prosecutors like Kim Fox there in Chicago, they do not address crime, which is the biggest issue facing um, Chicago. And like a lot of democratic cities, it's not black mayors, it's democratic cities. They have this, this new hands-off approach on violent criminals, criminals in general, but violent criminals, uh, that doesn't work at deterring crime. It's the old thing that worked in New York City is called broken windows is you have to police small crime and lesser crime and that has an effect on crime across the board, including violent crime. So if you can't get, you know, get away with a little, get away with a lot. So if they police the smaller crimes that they would have a chance at attacking the bigger crimes. Um, or suppressing bigger crimes, which they don't do. So it's this hands-off approach, like people are treated unfairly, and it really doesn't have to be, it's not as much about race as it is about economic standing, which there is some racism there, is that uh, the black community is unfairly treated uh, economically, not through handouts, but through opportunity. That's why like in the 70s, when they had uh, uh, econ economic opportunity now, or neons, um, uh, organizations um, to get economic uh, dollars into uh, low-income communities. That's the key to give them an economic, um, if you want to address anything racist, it's not really racist as much as it is, is um, economic or people that have financial uh, disability is that to get the economic dollars and like Trump did in the economic incentive zones, you get money into depressed communities and that helps people. It's not about race or letting people out. Oh, they come from a bad community or a low income community and so let them out of jail or without, you know, without bail. You could, you could apply for reduced bail perhaps because of your economic standing, but it's not, this thing about race is really a, a misdirection. And he's, he's wrong there uh, to begin with. Before I go into the last opinion piece, um, I have to go into this business article here. On Wall Street, socially responsible is common sense. In Congress, it's political. Lawmakers are trying to restrict these investment choices and workplace retirement plans, but big fund managers are trying to give share shareholders a voice. It's not that um, people in Congress is like it's political. Um, Congress is full of representatives of the electorate. And it's the electorate that don't like ESG. So what they're trying to argue in the New York Times business section is that Wall Street is trying to be uh, uh, socially responsible uh, by mandating or um, inserting ESG, and the leftists agree with this, and that's why it's the elite, it's the big business that's um, shoving ESG down our throats, but it's actually the people, the investors and their representatives in Congress who don't want ESG. And so this article for the New York Times tries to, um, they try to say, but big fund managers are trying to give shareholders a voice. 
But shareholders are, most shareholders are rejecting ESG because this whole green movement is actually a sham. And I'm not gonna go into a big diatribe here, but I'm just saying, cause we're gonna see this in the CHIP Act is that there's a lot of ESG involved in the CHIP Act. Um, and that's what is bad with a chip, a CHIP Act is spending and all this thing. But often known as ESG and investing, this approach takes its name from the environmental social governance factors that are used by millions of people in countless investment, business lifestyle, and government policy decisions every day. Not true. Millions of people, maybe in the world. In the financial world, trillions of dollars have been placed in investments that take ESG issues into account. It's part of the thinking of every major investment company because at its core is just common sense. Yet this approach has grown in popular. Yet as as this approach has grown in popularity, not among investors or the electorate, it has set off a powerful political backlash that was evident in Congress this past week when the House and Senate approved bills aimed at restricting. And the Senate is still controlled by Democrats, by the way. Approved bills aimed at restricting ESG investing in government will workplace retirement accounts in the United States. The White House has said that President Biden will veto the legislation, just so you know. And so we're gonna go uh, into the last opinion piece here, which has been getting a lot of press. Uh, we've been talking about the lab leak hypothesis all wrong. This is about David, this is by David Wallace Wells. And I'm not gonna go too much into um, this uh, 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 opinion piece itself. I just wanna go a little bit into, it talks about gain of function research um, which is fine, and it says uh, we've been talking about it all wrong, that we need to make these labs and this testing more safe. And he talks a lot, he talks to some degree about gain of function, which is which is fine. But he only mentions moratoriums once at the very end of the piece that said an Obama, I'll just read the last article, but it's not always clear that particular research projects point so obviously to potential benefits that they justify their inherent risk. Indeed, in fact, the wave of public concern that ultimately resulted in Obama-era moratorium of gain-of-function research began with the questions about experiments designed to push the avian influenza H5N1 virus to become transmittable, transmissible between mammals to better prepare to the eventuality that it should take place in nature. I'll, I, and I'll just read the last of it. And yet the result of those experiments is not proved helpful in anticipating recent bird flu developments with H5N1 appearing to follow a, a different evolutionary path. The point is here is that Obama-era moratorium, okay, but it wasn't put in by Obama. It was actually the scientists in the United States and in the Netherlands, at, at, really it was after CRISPR, is that it was becoming too easy to manipulate viruses and to make them so transmissible that they feared that because of the gain of function transmissibility, uh, the virulent nature of these viruses, that they would escape a laboratory, even a, a BSL-4 lab. And that leads into my theory that they gave China a virus that they knew was so transmissible that the safety protocols in China would never be able to keep it in. And the fact is what he argues here is true is that this kind of uh, experimentation to make is actually bioware warfare research to make viruses more deadly and more transmissible is not in any way preventing 
uh, the risks of a, a naturally occurring pandemic, but in fact raises the risk of these things escaping and causing one like we just saw, and nobody really wants to come to the very conclusion that that is in fact the case, and you're gonna see from Maggie Brennan that they don't wanna talk about the fact that they're doing this very dangerous research, and the danger is, is that shit escape, this shit can escape and then spread around the world in no time and everybody gets infected. Let's go talk to Maggie Brennan and uh, Brad Winstrup um, about the new uh, Republican House is putting together a subcommittee investigating the origins of, of COVID. And although Winstrup, uh, you know, stutters and stops and pays homage to all these different knuckleheads who are painting the false disinformation narrative, then he does talk a little bit about the truth about what we're facing now. So here we go. We turn now to Ohio Congressman Brad Wenstrup, who chairs the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. 18 different intelligence agencies in this country, no consensus on COVID's origins, two intel agencies undecided, what? four say it was natural transmission. And then last week, we learned that the Energy Department has joined the FBI in saying the virus likely spread through a mishap at a Chinese lab. A mishap at a Chinese lab. The more we find, the more questions that we may have. So you do have a variety of, of opinions, and really what we are trying to do is to follow the breadcrumbs, if you will, look at the forensics of what took place. Obviously, this is one of the more serious things that ever has ever happened to mankind. So if this was indeed the result of a lab leak, what is Congress doing to prevent this from ever happening again? We have to get to the truth of what actually happened in this pandemic. Recommendations from the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity to um, put oversight on gain-of-function experiments. Those are the things that, I guess, genetically alter a virus to enhance its functions and maybe make it more deadly. This was allegedly what was happening at this lab in Wuhan. It was allegedly what was happening at this lab in Wuhan. We were taking taxpayer dollars to fund research, not only in the United States, but in China, concerning this type of methodology, the creation of a chimera, or it's called gain-of-function research, where you can take two viruses and put them into one. I don't see a whole lot of commercial use for that necessarily, so it's something that if it's going to take place, it certainly should have oversight or should have had oversight. In 2015, Ralph Barrick in North Carolina, along with Dr. Zengli Shi in China, published their article about the ability to create these chimeras, and they did that. So we know that, that this technology exists. My real question is, why are we doing this with an adversary like China? And we have to look into what the reasoning was for that and what actually took place, where the money went, and why did it go there? Well, I know that there has been a lot of focus on Dr. Fauci, who has since retired um, from NIH. And I wonder if you think that is misplaced to personalize the scrutiny so much when the intelligence agencies are all so divided. I mean, I just want to get to facts. I want to ask you uh, about the membership on your committee, because you have Marjorie Taylor Greene on it. She shared misleading information about deaths and COVID vaccine. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who said masks never worked. He called the Omicron variant the midterm election variant. 
How do people take your committee work seriously with members like this on it? Look, there were things that were, were said, hey, this is a conspiracy theory. Stop this conspiracy theory that it may have come from the lab. Well, now you have agencies that are coming forward and saying that we do think it came from the lab. Mm -hmm. They're concerned about the adverse events that may come from the vaccine. These are legitimate things for Americans to be concerned about. And okay. through this process, I think we took doctors out of the equation all too often and left it up to non-physicians to tell America how to treat themselves. They're going to put you all back in chains. Yeah, my whole problem with that is that Maggie constantly disses um, Marjorie Taylor Greene because she says some things. First of all, her exact quote was about mandates and uh, vaccine passports. Um, I didn't go into the whole quote where she disses her about that. And the number of deaths, her misinformation, Marjorie Taylor Greene's misinformation about COVID deaths, where they were classifying, and even uh, Deborah Burke said this, they were classifying COVID deaths as caused by COVID that people that died with COVID. I mean, there are people that got gunshot wounds or died from motorcycle accidents that were lumped in to dine with COVID. So it's not some crazy conspiracy theory. It was true, and it was even, even coming from Deborah Burke's mouth that the way they were classifying COVID deaths as died of COVID was died with COVID, which is um, inaccurate. So, I mean, and, and, you know, Maggie Brennan is supposed to be a news person, and you, the more she talks like this, the more she becomes some sort of corporate hack. All right, and then I'm just going to leave you with um, David Pogue uh, from CBS Sunday Morning um, talking about the CHIPS Act, which is basically a billion dollars, hundreds of billion dollars spending bill to incentivize uh, American companies to build, to manufacture their semiconductor chips here in America instead of using slave labor in China, uh, China, and particularly Taiwan, where it's not slave labor, but they don't have to pay the amount they would have to pay people in the United States. And instead of um, spending hundreds of billion, billions of dollars to incentivize companies to do it here, why don't you just make it the law? So you could just, if Congress and the White House would get together and just make it the law, then you wouldn't have to spend $200 billion to incentivize or subsidize companies making chips here. And then we wouldn't have all the problems we have with you know, outsourcing to really, and not in the case of Taiwan, but outsourcing our manufacturing uh, to a part of the world, which is, uh, you know. Chris Miller teaches at Tufts University's Fletcher School and is the author of a book about the chip industry. And so here's the big one. Where is the chip industry? Most of the manufacturing happens in East Asia and Taiwan manufactures 90% of the world's most advanced processors. It's true. Over the last 30 years, the world has put almost all of its silicon eggs into one basket, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. It's now the world's biggest chip maker. Doesn't that mean our entire economy is a sitting duck? The biggest risk is geopolitics. As tensions between China and Taiwan escalate, there's more and more concern that China could try to disrupt chip supplies out of Taiwan by blockading the island or even attacking. The economic impact would be felt over many years and the cost would be measured in the trillions of dollars.
Since the 90s, America's share of global chip making has dropped from 37% to 12%. Today, American companies like Apple, AMD, NVIDIA, and Qualcomm design their own chips, but they all hire TSMC to make them. TSMC even makes some of the chips for Intel, the American company that pioneered the semiconductor. It really provided an attractive incentive for, for companies to do more manufacturing in, in East Asia. Geopolitics could disrupt our supply of chips at any time. The CHIPS Act is a law developed by the Trump administration. The CHIPS Act could be a huge deal for America, both for our economy and for our national security. It includes $13 billion for research and development, what? $39 billion for building new plants, and about $24 billion in tax credits to attract private investors. As Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger puts it, this is the most significant piece of industrial policy legislation since World War II. If it works, this act will spark an American chip-making boom in massive fabrication plants called fabs, like the two that Intel is building in Arizona. So how much does it cost per fab? About. It's a little over $20 billion. Is it accurate to say that some of that money came from the CHIPS Act? Well, welcome. That's absolutely our expectation. Now, the CHIPS Act isn't popular with everyone. One reason is the fine print. For example, to receive the government's money, a semiconductor company must promise to pay its employees a market wage and offer childcare. What? You have to turn your company into a social welfare operation. You have to join this brave new world, whether you like it or not. I think the CHIPS Act is an important turning point, but it's on, on its own, it's not going to be enough to revolutionize the chip industry or to dramatically reduce uh, our dependence on chips manufactured in Taiwan. With the prospect of grants from the CHIPS Act, 14 companies have either announced or broken ground on 22 new chip factories in America. America. Including two more in Arizona, being built by our old friends from Taiwan, TSMC. Altogether, that's $160 billion of spending. Basically, regain that manufacturing share in partnership with the U.S. government. Yeah, what I don't understand, I don't understand there is the $16 billion to research and development. Um, I could understand maybe you subsidizing them, uh, the building of plants here uh, in the United States, but to give companies that are basically all they're doing in America is R&D, they're designing their chips, research and development, and you're subsidizing the work that they're doing here in America with $13 billion. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Spending bills like this, like I said, you could just use Congress and just make it a law. Instead of just... <laughs> Spending. That's why the Democrats love it. It's a spending bill. Let's employ everybody in the United States. Um, that's not the government's job. You can just make a law that says you have to manufacture your chips here, especially if you're contracted in any way with the United States military or United States government. And you have to manufacture chips here. So, But that was the big boon uh, for corporations was using Asian uh, manufacturing. Uh, because it was just cheaper. You didn't have to deal with unions or you didn't have to deal with a, a lot of environmental costs. And now 
And that's what people don't understand. They're like, yeah, let, you know, let China manufacture, but they don't, they don't understand that China pollute, their manufacturers pollute, and then they treat their employees horribly. <laughs> you think you have daycare or uh, any of the other benefits that workers in the United States have? You think, uh, you think they have that? And the, you think the Uyghurs have that? I mean, it's just ridiculous. All right, that's it for me, Rudy's Revelation. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, get our mind. Truth Social, leave a comment down below, uh, get in the conversation, and I'll see you tomorrow. You can't handle the truth.